Let me hear you. Good and loud. All right, Gary. All one. All two. All three. Take me out to the There's over 500 recordings of this song on so many different genres of music, uh, whether it be jazz, rock, polka, it just it goes on and on. I think there would be a revolt in this country if we ever stopped playing that song during the seventh inning stretch. Just when you think maybe, maybe the song is uh, bottomed out, Somebody comes along and acknowledges the, the song, an entertainer, that brings it back. Whether it was Frank Sinatra, Liberace, LL Cool J, Aretha Franklin, it literally has a life of its own. When you think of songs about sports, they're all fight songs, they're all marches, two steps. It's about conquering, it's about the team, it's about winning. Take Me Out to the Ball Game has nothing to do with that. It's a waltz. We're actually singing a waltz in a sports stadium. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. We are a member of the Goat Rodeo Podcast Network. On June 19, 1846, the first officially recorded organized baseball game was played in Hoboken, New Jersey. Over the coming decades, the game spread throughout the Northeast, quickly becoming one of the region's favorite leisure activities. It took less than 20 years after that first game before a songwriter also caught baseball fever and penned the first tune about the sport. There was kind of a golden era of baseball songs in the, um, I think the earliest are in the 1850s, maybe 58 is the first baseball song. And there were, uh, it seems like a couple of dozen in the 19th century, but the whole environment for purchasing music had changed early in the 20th century. And um there had not been a hit baseball song, to my knowledge, prior to Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1908. That's Tim Wiles, former director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame and the first of three authors of the book, Baseball's Greatest Hit, the story of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And here's the second author, music publisher Robert Thompson. Baseball was becoming more and more a part of American culture. And that transition had taken place over the previous 20 years. In 1908, baseball was unchallenged as the main sport in American culture, certainly the main team sport. It was quite popular. There really was no basketball yet, uh, no football to speak of. Those sports had their roots, but they had not become popular at the collegiate level and certainly not at the professional level. So baseball was generally known as the national pastime. By 1908, a massive increase in sales of sheet music, which customers could take home and perform at their upright piano, meant the music publishing industry had become big business. That industry was concentrated in Tin Pan Alley, a block of offices along West 28th Street in Manhattan. As the music publishing business boomed, so did competition amongst songwriters. 
Hoping to be the first to capture a particular feeling in the air, composers followed fluctuations in popular culture and quickly penned songs about new trends. The baseball trend was no different. In the spring of 1908, a songwriter named Jack Norworth caught the whiff of baseball fever in the air. Jack Norworth uh, was a native of Philadelphia. He was, I believe, about 24 or so at the time that uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game was written in 1908. He was not born Jack Norworth either. His last name was Knopf. That's Andy Strasberg, former vice president of marketing for the San Diego Padres and the third and final author of the book, Baseball's Greatest Hit. Once he realized that he had a talent and could make a living in show business writing lyrics, he decided to change his name to Jack Norworth. I like to call him a five-tool entertainer. He was a singer, he was a dancer, he was a theater star, but he recorded songs and he, um, he wrote about 2,500 songs. Um, a big star, but not a big star yet. No one knows for sure exactly where he got the idea, but his story was that he was riding north uh, on a subway car in Manhattan someday in 1908. The subway he got on no longer exists. It's the IRT elevated train, which used to run along Broadway above the street, and it went up to the um, old polo grounds. Jack North gets on the subway, and he saw a sign that said, um, baseball game today, Polo Grounds and the Giants. Before the Giants relocated to San Francisco in 1958, they played in Upper Manhattan in a stadium called the Polo Grounds. He thought, well, you know, everybody's interested. You know, it's 1908. Everybody's interested in baseball. And thought to himself, you know, as he put it, there's never been a baseball song written. He was a little bit off on that. He takes out a piece of paper and starts writing. Fifteen minutes later, he had it. And... That became Take Me Out to the Ball Game. While researching baseball's greatest hit, the three authors unearthed documents that challenged the accuracy of Norworth's story. But we'll dive into that a bit later on. Soon, after his fateful elevated train ride, Norworth showed the lyrics to his songwriting partner, Albert von Tilzer. Albert von Tilzer was from Indiana. He was from a uh, family of five brothers, all of whom went into um, show business and mostly into songwriting and eventually song publishing. If I'm not mistaken, all five of them ended up in New York working in Tin Pan Alley. And I think Albert von Tilzer wrote a couple of thousand songs as well and also has a few hits uh, outside of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but of course is best remembered for Take Me Out to the Ball Game. First of all, his last name was not Von Tilzer. Gumbinski is his uh, last name, and he changed it to uh, Gum, G-U-M-M, and then he changed it again to Von Tilzer. Tilzer was actually his mother's maiden name. Albert inserted the Von in front of it to give his surname the aura of nobility. Following his older brother's lead, Tilzer left Indiana to seek his fortune in Tin Pan Alley. When Norworth showed Tilzer his freshly written lyrics, Tilzer thought the final line of the refrain, one, two, three strikes you're out in the old ball game, had, quote, a nice smack. As soon as they got together, Von Tilzer created a melody. He was more of the, the music guy in the partnership. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Take me out to the 
Norworth and Tilzer promoted their song hard. They printed sheet music with a varying array of covers, each featuring a different photograph of a famous singer. They hoped that when one of these singers saw a photograph of themselves on the cover, they'd be persuaded to incorporate the song into their act. Norworth was married to the singer and actress Nora Bays, a huge star at the time, and she performed ballgame in her vaudeville shows. The song also received a boost after a controversial 1908 baseball season earned the sport robust newspaper coverage. But even with all the attention heaped on the game and vaudeville performances, nothing played a bigger role in Take Me Out to the Ballgame's success than a now-forgotten piece of technology. Baseball was only on the East Coast at this time in Chicago. It wasn't out West. And in 1908, Take Me Out to the Ballgame was the number one song in every state. So why was it the number one song in states where people didn't even know baseball? The reason why it became so popular across the United States was in part because of a a little-known thing called Magic Lantern Slides. So a Magic Lantern is any sort of device that projects an image that has been painted or etched or printed onto usually a glass slide. It will reproduce that image in a larger size on a screen or a wall. That's Esther Morgan Ellis, a Magic Lantern slide historian and author of the forthcoming book, Everybody Sing, Community Singing in the American Picture Palace. The magic lantern is something that dates back hundreds of years and is a pretty broad term. The original lanterns would use different sorts of non-electric light sources. They might burn different kinds of oil. Um, There's some early limelight sources, and it really depends. Magic lanterns range from little toys that kids had that would have really simple, weak light sources, maybe even a candle, to really powerful ones that were used in theaters. Think of it like a still image projector that doesn't use a light bulb or electricity. Throughout the 19th century, the magic lantern found its way into vaudeville shows, mesmerizing audiences with projections of photos of exotic places or colorful painted slides illustrating a fictional tale. Then, in the final decade of the 19th century, as vaudeville shows began incorporating motion pictures, magic lantern acts and films were placed on the bill next to each other. From the 1890s, though, when motion pictures begin to be exhibited mostly in vaudeville. They're using a combined machine that can project both slides and film. And what it is, is it has one light source and then two different attachments, one that works for slides and one that works for film. So these are the same slides that you've seen for hundreds of years, um, but a slightly updated device that can run both kinds of media. So it's not really fair to call that a magic lantern anymore, but you still call them lantern slides. As early movie theaters called Nickelodeons opened, the proprietors adopted the vaudeville convention and kept magic lantern performances side by side with motion pictures. So from 1905 to 1913, a movie theater was usually a storefront with about 200 folding chairs and a cloth screen and a piano. And it wasn't a permanent space. It wasn't a specifically designed space. It was just whatever the exhibitor could come up with uh, to show some films and some songs and make a few dollars. Because the films were silent, each Nickelodeon hired a piano player to provide the film soundtrack. 
In between films or during real changes, the piano player and a singer would perform songs for the audience. When this started happening, music publishers saw an opportunity and began promoting songs directly to Nickelodeon musicians. Then they really got big, both because motion pictures became so popular and the entertainment associated with them, these little theaters that were cropping up all over, um, and also because they were picked up by music publishers as being a really great opportunity to advertise the music, the sheet music that they wanted to sell. Back then, we didn't have radio. And the way that songs became popular was through the vaudeville theaters and the Nickelodeons, the precursors to movie theaters, where you'd go into a hall and there'd be maybe a 15-minute silent film. And in between those films, there would be song pluggers. A song plugger would come out and sing a song. It would be a new song. And it was actually the music publishing industry that would send the song pluggers around the country. So publishers started commissioning sets of slides to illustrate their latest songs that they hoped to make into hits, and then loaning or renting those out to singers. The sets of Magic Lantern slides created to accompany a song had an official name. They were called Illustrated Songs. So an illustrated song is a series of slides that contain images that illustrate the song. The way it would usually be performed is you would have um, a pianist and a singer and then a third person in charge of the magic lantern. And that person would change slides. You would expect to see 16 slides total. The first slide would contain the cover of the sheet music. Then you would have 14 slides that are just images. Usually they're photographic images that are then hand-colored by women who worked in the slide workshops. And then only the very last slide would have the words to the chorus. So what would actually happen in a performance is the singer would sing a verse and then a chorus and then a verse and a chorus, all with just images illustrating the text. And then the lyric slide would go up and everyone would be invited to join in. And it usually says, all join in the chorus at the top of the slide. Entertainment in general used to be a lot more participatory than it is today. Very typical in lots of different settings for people to join in, to sing along. Tilzer and Norworth, Tin Pan Alley veterans with their ears open to new trends, decided to commission illustrated song slides for Take Me Out to the Ball Game. So the slides, for example, they illustrate the verses of the song, which are really interesting and most people don't know them. What's interesting about Take Me Out to the Ball Game is that when you open up the sheet music, there's a verse. We sing the refrain at ball games, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But the verse is really the key to the song, and nobody knows the verse. The verse is actually about a girl. Jack wrote, Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown crew, every Sue Katie blew. Sue, S-O-U, is a French coin. It was a pretty common term back then. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said, no, I'll tell you what you can do. And then we get into the chorus. In 1908, it was very uncommon for women to go to ball games. 
in some stadiums, women weren't allowed to go to ball games, certainly not by themselves. Take Me Out to the Ball Game, really, it was an illustrated song. When it was first published by Von Tiltzer, they commissioned uh, DeWitt C. Wheeler, one of the leading illustrated song slide producers, to create a set of slides. And those slides were distributed to movie theaters. Probably lots of people for the very first time heard Take Me Out to the Ball Game and engaged with it as an illustrated song in a theater. So in the case of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, the publishers created these magic lantern slides that showed a woman, Katie Casey, at a ballpark. In this case, it was actually shot at the polo grounds. The slides, which still exist, the Hall of Fame has some of them, are wonderful to look at because you see this woman with popcorn, which has only been around for since 1896. That's when Cracker Jack was yeah, invented. And she's in the front row of the polo grounds and enjoying herself. And she's the only woman. It's packed. The entire polo grounds is packed, but she's the only woman there. It's a song about a young woman who wants to go to the baseball game. And the baseball game is really a male-dominated space. It's obviously men playing the sport and lots of men in the audience. And so it's about a woman who is adventurous and, and cutting edge and really seeking liberty and full engagement with social activities. It is absolutely a song that engages with what's called at the time the, uh, the new woman. And so this is a young woman who gets out of the house, who has lots of social activities, who maybe has a job, and who does things that would be traditionally associated with men. As it turns out, Jack Norworth and Albert von Tilzer were strong supporters of the women's suffrage movement. Jack Norworth was married to Nora Bays, and they were like the Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt of their day. They were the most well-known couple in New York City. They were absolute celebrities. But Nora Bays was uh, particularly a strong supporter of the women's suffrage movement. How much that played a role in the song, we don't really know, although it would have meant something back in 1908 to hear that verse. So most of the slides are pictures of this young lady at the baseball game having a great time. And if you look at the images that Wheeler chose for these illustrated song slides, you'll see, first of all, that she's wearing the clothing of this new woman. So she's still in a dress, of course, but it's a modern sort of dress that allows her more physical freedom and is associated with this sort of, you know, up-to-date, liberated young woman. And then lots of the pictures show her in the crowd with all men. And so it's her and a sea of men in suits and bowler hats. And she is, she's shaking her fist in the air and she's making ugly faces and she is just losing it over this baseball game. She's so excited about what's happening. So the experience, both from the text of the song itself and especially the experience of seeing these slides in conjunction with the song being performed, it makes it very clear that this this is a song about a young woman with very progressive ideas, someone who's willing to go out there and do manly things, engage in manly pastimes, and who's really willing to uh, abandon female decorum. And then the very last slide has the sing-along text. 
People went to see the show, so the focus literally was on the screen. But then all of a sudden, the screen stops, and now the show is the audience. They're the ones that are providing the entertainment because they're singing along and they're gesturing with their hands. One, two, three strikes you out. And the whole point is to get it stuck in people's heads so that they want to buy the sheet music and take it home and play it on their piano. And the sheet music was often for sale in the lobby, so they made it very easy for you to do that. Back then, men couldn't read music, or most of them. It was women who learned to read music and could play the piano. And to sound a little sexist, it was the men who were going to the vaudeville theaters and saloons and listening to these song pluggers singing new songs. So typically what might happen in a household would be after work, a husband would stop by a, a saloon or a vaudeville theater, listen to a show with some of his business colleagues. He'd hear a new song. He'd come home and he'd say, honey, I heard this new song today. Can you go down to the music store and buy the sheet music and we can sing it together? Well, women quickly picked up on this song and it sold six million, six million copies of the sheet music in 1908. And that's how Take Me Out to the Ball Game became famous, not in ballparks, but in movie theaters. By the end of 1908, it was the best-selling song in America. As Take Me Out to the Ball Game became popular, prominent singers recorded the song, hoping their records would sell as well as the sheet music. Harvey Hindermeyer, Edward Meeker, and Bill Murray, all three released the song as a recording within about six weeks of each other in October and November of 1908. At least two of those three went to number one. It's pretty rare for um, three recordings of the same song to be uh, topping the charts at the same time. Socially progressive lyrics and captivating illustrated song slides helped sell over six million copies of sheet music and propelled three separate recordings of the song into the top ten. Feeling left out of the action, the rest of Tin Pan Alley scrambled to write their own baseball songs. Thus began the era of bad baseball music writing. <laughs> Every publisher put out a song about baseball, trying to compete with Take Me Out to the Ball Game. It was such a huge success. Everybody was trying to copy it. Irving Berlin, for instance, tried to copy it. Once a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley saw something that made it and was successful, they all thought, I can do this, and I can do it better, and I'm going to be more successful. After the success of Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the autumn of 1908, uh, there are at least 20 baseball songs uh, written and published um, in the next two years or so. 
And quite a few of them have titles that are quite clearly attempts to capitalize on the success of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. They have songs like Come Out to the Ball Game with Me and Can I Take You Out to the Ball Game and I Want to Go to the Ball Game. It became this number one hit throughout America, but it was never sung in ballparks. It was never played in ballparks. That didn't occur to, I think, a couple of decades later. Before the song could become part of baseball tradition, it needed two things to help it get there. The technology to play the music for an entire stadium and an appropriate time during the ball game to sing it. The seventh inning stretch itself uh, originates in the late 1860s. The early, earliest print reference to the seventh inning stretch is in a letter written by, uh, it was either George Wright or Harry Wright, two brothers who were formative figures in the early history of the game. And they describe uh, that between the halves of the seventh inning, uh, people stand up and they refresh themselves from the uh, weariness of their body that might occur from seven innings of sitting on what I think they called the hard bleaching boards, which was an early name for the word bleachers. So there's this print reference in a letter in the 1860s, 1869, I think, to the seventh inning stretch. And then you don't find any references to it until the early 20th century when um, a story begins to be retold at Manhattan College, where the sports teams today are known as the Jaspers after a dean of sports there in the early 20th century named Brother Jasper. Brother Jasper began working at Manhattan College in 1861 and soon founded the school's first baseball team. The college made Brother Jasper head coach of the new team in addition to his other duties as prefect of discipline. As Manhattan came to bat in the bottom of the seventh inning, during one game on a warm and humid summer day, Brother Jasper noticed that the students in the audience were becoming restless. To relieve the tension, his instincts as the prefect of discipline kicked in and Brother Jasper called a timeout, ordering the students to stand up and stretch. After that game, Manhattan College made stretching during the seventh inning standard practice. A few decades later, Manhattan College began playing an annual game with the New York Giants at the old polo grounds, the same stadium where the Magic Lantern slides were photographed. The New York Giants quickly adopted the seventh inning stretch, and the practice soon spread to other major league teams. At least, that's how Manhattan College tells the story on its website. But there are other origin stories. And then there's a very similar creation myth right about the same time. I think it's 1910. Uh, President William Howard Taft is at a baseball game on opening day, and he stands up in between halves of the seventh inning. And this causes everyone around him to stand up out of respect. So it's really a very similar story. So we've got a seventh inning stretch that's happening at least by uh, the early 20th century and that probably was happening as early as 1869. But there's no musical component of it yet. The organ, of course, the pipe organ first and then the electronic organ, the Wurlitzer particularly, became very important to in the development of film because in silent film, you had to have something playing, you know, something accompanying the film. It was natural to bring them into sports arenas and, and stadiums. And of course, it helps to create some dramaturgy or drama in the game in between um, innings and pitching changes. 
when you go to a baseball game, especially after 1941, when the Brooklyn Dodgers and then a week or two later, the Chicago Cubs installed, believe it or not, the first organs in Major League Baseball stadiums and public address systems in ballparks date to, I think, around 1935 or 38. So you don't have an apparatus to have music be a standard part of the ballpark experience in ballparks until about 1941. It would take another three and a half decades after the first electric organ was installed before any stadium would sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. But we'll get to that in a bit. First, I mentioned earlier that the authors of Baseball's Greatest Hit dispute Norworth's claim that he wrote the lyrics on an elevated train after seeing an ad in a train car. For the first 50 years of the song's life, the origin story was never made public, but circumstances in the late 50s made it convenient for Norworth to publicize the tale. The thing that's interesting about the story and how it came about was in 1958. And the reason why that's significant is because Albert von Tilzer, he died in 1956. So no one could dispute this, and it was never brought up until 1958, which coincidentally happened to be the 50th anniversary of the writing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Without Tilzer alive to confirm or deny Norworth's claims, the world took his word for it, and his story has since become part of the Take Me Out to the Ball Game legend. But when the authors of Baseball's Greatest Hit began digging around the New York City transit archives, they unearthed a couple of discrepancies. We've done some detective work, and we found it's almost virtually impossible that a sign in a subway car promoting a baseball game today would make any sense because of the schedule. Some days you have games, some days you don't have games. Well, you can't go through all the the elevated train cars and take out signs and put up signs on the days that there is a baseball game. So he might have been inspired by something similar to it. It could have been in a newspaper because back then newspaper ads would talk about the game that day. You could blame Norworth's inconsistencies on time blurring his memory, but that same year he publicized another tenuous story. In interviews, Norworth began claiming that neither he nor his songwriting partner ever attended a baseball game before composing their tune. Jack Norworth added to the legend and lore, saying that he hadn't, but when we did some investigative work, we found out that more than likely he did. Uh, we found quotes not only from Jack, but from other people indicating that Jack had been to a ball game. And we found a column from the Sporting News in 1953 where Jack was the guest of a sports writer named Oscar Rule, and uh, just kind of a reminiscences piece. And Oscar Rule says, Hey, remember when we went up to the polo grounds to see uh, John McGraw and the Giants? And Jack says, yeah, I remember you dragged me up there. He says, you know, after that visit, I wrote my uh, umpire song, which wasn't as popular as Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And he wrote one song about umpires called Let's Get the Umpire's Goat in 1909. So, you know, he seems to be saying here in 1953, yes, I visited the polo grounds and a ball game in 1908. Jack Norworth died in 1959, just one year after his song's 50th anniversary. He may have invented tales to promote Take Me Out to the Ball Game, 
But if he could have seen what would have happened to his song two decades after his death, Norworth would have realized that his tune could take care of itself. Well, a lot of people think that Take Me Out to the Ball Game and the seventh inning stretch started in 1908. It did not. In fact, it took until the 1970s for every team to get on board and start playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And it started at uh, Comiskey Park with Harry Carey. Our next guest tonight has been calling baseball games. This is hard to believe. 42 years this man has been doing play-by-play. He is considered one of the best and certainly one of the most colorful of anyone in the business. If you happen to be at Wrigley Field and you can make it through seven innings of watching the Cubs, it's only a joke. It's only a joke. You'll see him during the stretch. Take a look now at this man in action during the seventh inning stretch. Here he is, Harry Carey. All right! Let me hear you good and loud. Sir, it's like some kind of religious ceremony, isn't it? Please welcome Harry Carey. I didn't realize there's so many true music lovers. Yeah. As there are here. Now, how, how did that start? You do that every game at Wrigley Field? You know, I've always sung. Whenever I heard Take Me Out to the Ball Game, I'd sing it, but only in the booth. And uh, the first six years I was with the White Sox, uh, the only people who heard me sing was Jimmy Pearsall and our producer. The guys you worked with there. The yeah, broadcast. right, in the booth. Well, Bill Veck bought the ball club, and he noticed uh, just lip reading that I was singing. And then after a couple of days, he noticed the fans right below the booth were singing with me. Uh, <clears throat> and then one day, without my knowing it, he had a public address microphone put in the booth. Where, right. And uh, I'm saying, take me out to the ball game. All of a sudden, I hear my voice come booming back at me, along with about 15,000 others. So after the game, I went up to Bill. I said, what was that all about? He said, Harry, I've been waiting 35 years to find the right guy to do this. And, you know, I'm getting a little pumped up. I think he's, he's flattering me. He said, yeah. He says, as soon as I heard you, he said, I knew that any fan sitting in the ballpark, as soon as he heard you sing, would be happy happy to sing along because they knew every one of them that they could sing at least as good if not better than you (laughs) bill veck who owns the chicago white Sox in the 1970s has a great quote in our book where he says i finally found the right salesman i tried this before in milwaukee i tried it in cleveland i tried it in st louis all these are places where he had owned uh, major or minor league baseball teams But when I found Harry Carey in Chicago, I had it. Carey's performances spilled out far beyond the ballpark. Thanks to the government's deregulation of cable television, fans across the country could hear Carey singing while sitting in front of their TV. And then the White Sox were on a uh, local cable or a regional cable channel, which I think was called Sports Channel. So they were seen all over the upper Midwest. And... um, After the 1981 season, Harry Carey leaves the White Sox and goes across town to the Cubs, and they are also on a cable superstation with WGN, and their reach is much broader than the upper Midwest. It's really essentially coast-to-coast. And once Harry started doing that at Wrigley Field and WGN was broadcast all over the country, it was a fire that no one could put out. Everyone sees Harry Carey sing this every day during the seventh inning stretch. And it begins to be done at other major league ballparks and at minor league ballparks and at college ballparks, etc. cetera. 
109 years after its composition, Take Me Out to the Ball Game is as popular as ever. Out of the 30 teams in the major league, all but a few have adopted singing the tune as part of their seventh inning stretch tradition. Many musicologists believe that the song is the third most frequently sung in America, trailing behind only the Star-Spangled Banner and Happy Birthday. It's not at all remarkable for this song to have been popular in 1908. What's remarkable is for this song to have been popular again, starting in the 1970s. The second life of this song is a really amazing phenomenon from an American popular culture point of view. And we think the reason for that has to do with Vec and Carey and cable TV. If you imagine at that point in the seventh inning stretch when the song is sung, is as if you have a camera pointing onto the field following the game, and then there's this pause, this hiatus, this respite, and the camera is turned to the fans. And for those three or four minutes, it's not the game that is celebrated. It's not the team that's being celebrated. It's the fans. My background of working for the San Diego Padres in marketing, the most important thing that I thought we needed to do and baseball needed to do was to shine the light on the fan. Without the fan, there is no game. And the fact that you've got Take Me Out to the Ball Game that is all about the fans and they participate and they are the star in the seventh inning, you're on. Go ahead, start singing. Now it's you. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Tim Townsend was the editor. My thanks to Andy Strasberg, Robert Thompson, and Tim Wiles for being our guests. Their book, Baseball's Greatest Hit, The Story of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, is available in most online retail outlets. Also a big thanks to Esther Morgan Ellis. Her book, Everybody Sing, Community Singing in the American Picture Palace, will be available next fall. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes, whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. We'll bring you another lost, forgotten, or obscured story about music on the next Between the Liner Notes. <laughs>